This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and it's just so great to live in a city of literature really is something of a privilege. There's always a celebration of writers and storytellers beating the drum somewhere around this wonderful city, each with their regionalisms and local flavour and focus on topics both local and universal. Today, I'll be talking to the director of the Glen Iris Storytelling Festival, Suzanne Olb, about this Southside event running from the 22nd of June to the 7th of July, with stories including Four Generations of First Nation Women, Tales of the Burbs, The Challenges of the Me Too Movement, and Digital Cultural Survival Games, to name but a few. But first, we've had a few authors uh, of young adult fiction on this show, titles usually pitched to teenagers, but very rarely do we cover books for kids or that very elusive category, middle readers. I caught up with author Bren McDibble to talk about her award-winning middle reader book, How to Be, and that's B. Double E, as in the little buzzy kind. It's a hopeful story of survival set in a dystopic future. Uh, it came out in 2017, deservedly attracting swathes of awards. Bren also has a new book out, The Dog Runner, so that's one to look out for too. And I'll be playing the interview with Bren very shortly. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R, the show about books, writers and writing. I'm Mel Cranenberg. It's a tough life now that all the bees have died and heaps of people are too poor for more than a basic existence. But Peony is a happy kid and while she may technically be too young to become a bee, one of the kids who climbs high into the fruit trees to hand pollinate the flowers, she's determined to do it anyway. In fact, Peony is one small bundle of determination. So when her mother comes to the farm to drag her into a life serving a rich family in the big smoke, Peony is certain she will find her way back home to her beloved sister and granddad and the outdoor life that she adores. This is the story of how to be, be double E that is, a beautiful inspiring novel for middle readers by a wonderful local author Bren McDibble. The book has been out for a while and has attracted a swathe of awards and Bren now has a new book The Dog Runner that's also um, available for young and middle readers. I caught up with Bren last week to talk about how to be writing for a young audience and her latest book and I'd like to play that for you now. McDibble, welcome to Backstory. Thank you for having me on, Mel. So How to Be was a wonderful surprise, actually, uh, to read. I haven't read any middle reader fiction in quite some time, and this was definitely something that's now made me extremely hungry to see what else is out there, because it has all the depth and nuance of an adult book, but very much uh, seen from the perspective of 
of a child, which is really what you hope to get from books like this, really something that sets young readers up to be the adults that you'll hope that they will become. But I really want you to sort of explain to listeners what this wonderful book is about and how you embarked on such a dark topic, really. Um, Well... It's about a time in the future, about 30 years in the future, when there are no bees and there's been a famine. But the book is set after the world has resettled. So the um, what happens now is that poor people live on orchards and their children run through the fruit trees and hand-pollinate the flowers. So it's a story about a little girl who wants to be one of these hand-pollinators. That is her goal in life, and she knows all about the orchard. Um, and so she's going to be a hand pollinator. One day she's going to be foreman of the orchard, and this is her dream. But um, her mother comes and takes her to work in the city, and that's not her dream, and she's quite a, a bolshy young girl, and she wants to get back to the orchard. Um, and I think the reason I thought about writing about something to do with the environment and just taking away one thing, like the bees, um, is because children are worried worldwide about bees and they're worried about climate change and they're worried in ways that they can't always articulate. So by putting something in a story, just one thing, it allows them to then talk about that within the context of a story and I think that's quite helpful for children for getting over their anxiety about climate change. It is worth mentioning at this point that the title How to Be is actually the B-double-E-B, as in Buzzy Bee. And it's a really quite, it's a beautiful looking cover uh, with a young girl, sort of illustrated young girl sitting up in a tree with a chook sitting beside her in this quite lovely yellow. Um, And so it's sort of a, a quite deceptively cheery cover for what goes on in the book. Although I have to say, in many ways, it's an extremely hopeful uh really quite um you know powerful book uh it doesn't sort of leave you sitting in the dark you feel really strongly that this central character peony is not going to only survive she's going to really thrive in this quite cruel world i would say that she finds herself in you've done this wonderful thing with the child voice which sort of has a bit of a faulty narrator element to it or quite a lot of a faulty narrator Mm. element where the reader is seeing a little bit more than maybe Peony can see because she's moving outside of her comfort zone which is a very kind of simple life on the farm where her ambitions are to become a bee which is the hand pollinators that you mentioned and she's very competitive about that she's not even 10 yet which is the age that most bees get chosen but she's determined to get chosen anyway Uh, but when she actually ends up in a world that's a little bit more familiar to readers she really is a little bit out of her depth in terms of understanding what's going on but still manages to somehow conquer all of that what made you kind of approach things uh, through this way because quite often in children's literature and in fact in all literature the narrator is often the character that sort of you know carries the story for the readers so it's like the readers way in so they see the world through the eyes of someone that's more familiar to them why did you choose to sort of flip that um well the view of um the viewpoint of peony is is really honest and it's forthright and this is a simple person who's had a simple upbringing and she knows what's you know what's real and what's honest and she um she 
she just tells it like it is and she's quite bolshy. And whereas adults quite often read into the world, they read the book differently to children. So adults don't trust that Peony knows what she's doing. Whereas Peony's just so bolshy and gung-ho and this is right and this is stupid and I want to be this. The, the younger readers believe in Peony. And they follow Peony's story. So while you say Peony is living in hardship, Peony's already thriving. She has a beautiful shed. She has a beautiful grandfather. She has enough to eat. She has a beautiful sister who looks out for her. So she's thriving on the orchard. So she's grown up surrounded by love and care. And she has ambitions. And she has a you know healthy lifestyle. She is thriving in that environment already. And that's something I wanted children to see, that even if you lose everything, and we've juxtapositioned that against um, Esmeralda, who has everything in the city, and she has things that Peony thinks are stupid. Why do you need that many clothes? Why do you need a whole big bath full of water just for one person? And, you know, why do you need to change your clothes constantly? So, you know, that's kind of, um, yeah, it's trying to just show young readers that even if everything changes, if everything was taken away, if you still have the things that you really need to get by, like love and security and care, you know, you're going to be fine. Like, Peony is fine. But adult readers bring to it more. They're like, those are, you know, slave labour on the orchard, <laughs> working children. And I'm like, well, children were working, you know. I was a working child. Nobody ever paid me cash to go round up sheep or do lambing beets or anything. Well, that sort of really um, brings me to a, another thing about this book that's quite sort of delightful, which is it reminded me of the book Heidi, which I read uh, as a kid, probably a kid of a similar age to Peony, uh, which, you know, is the story of a young girl who, you know, lives up, you know, in the hills with her grand father and she's perfectly happy and she ends up sort of helping another city dweller Clara um, who's you know not very well to kind of get back on her feet there's a lot of parallels between that story and this one obviously set in a different time but you know you sort of get that the social order is very similar in this sense that you know Peony is uh, a young girl from a very poor background but at the same time she's strong and she's able and she's the one that's really going to get ahead in life mm-hmm. um, but you know and Esmeralda I suppose or as uh, as she becomes known to Penny uh, is a little bit, bit more like the Clara character she's rich but she's terrified of the world and, and really disabled by that and I think um, the relationship that forms between the two girls is really really reminded me of Heidi Oh, cool. I loved Heidi when I was little. Maybe I subconsciously absorbed that story. (laughs) But it's interesting you mention, you know, children did work because there's a lot about this book that really does feel like it was written in another, you know, written about the past rather than the future because it really does look at a return to sort of domestic labour, a working lower class who served the wealthy because, you know, obviously labour is extremely cheap when there's a huge divide between rich and poor, something that you can imagine has really been strongly exacerbated by this famine and the fact that obviously a few people had things and others didn't. Did you really draw quite a bit from those old sort of more Dickensian tales to sort of, you know, get that feeling of a, of a really yeah. uh, believable upstairs-downstairs or is it more modern parallels uh, of, you know, of things that are genuinely going on in the world? 
Um, well, what I wanted to show initially was that any any climate crisis affects the poor more than the rich. The rich are able to insulate themselves. So if there's a food shortage, who is going to get the food? The people with the spare cash, the spare money, or who can raise funds quickly. So very quickly, the poor people are going to be shut out of food. And then the middle the middle tier of people, um, they follow as they sell their houses and sell everything they own to try and buy into the food. So very quickly we see most of society slide off into poverty when there is would if there's a massive massive climate change we will see that happen so i wanted to show that there are so many more poor now but also by having um the children in the orchards collect the bugs and do the manual labor and everything they're um, circumventing the need for pesticides and chemicals so they've learned um, they've learned how to like protect the environment a bit better from the catastrophe, the bee catastrophe. So I wanted to show humans doing the work as well. There was um, there was a story that really um, sort of affected me in that way is um, about the peapod farmers in India who had been you know farming um, chickpeas or whatever for for so so long. But they were suddenly in debt to all these um, pesticide manufacturers to get rid of this one beetle they couldn't control. Um, and the, the quality of the produce was getting worse and worse and worse and they were unable to pay their debts. So they finally went to the older people in the village and said, how did you control this pest in the past? And they said, oh, well, we lay down a sheet and we got a flock of chickens and we walked between the rows and then we had people bash the rows so if you hire five poor people and a flock of chooks, you won't have to pay the pesticide manufacturers anymore. They did that and the produce and output of the plants thrived. And, I mean, they had chickens and eggs as well to eat. <laughs> See, there, that's something that Penny really quite wisely observes, that there's a, you know that things work in a circle, she says, and, you know, basically you knock the pests out of the, the garden or pull the pests out of the plants and then they get fed to the chickens and then the chicken lays eggs and then feeds the workers and on goes yeah. the cycle. But if you use poison, it cuts the circle that, yeah, that's she says formed, cuts, it in, cuts it in half. And I thought that was a really beautiful way of putting yeah. it. There's a lot of STEM subjects that can go with this book and there's really amazing teacher's notes at Ellen and Unwin web- website. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Bren McDibble about her wonderful book, How to Be a middle reader book that imagines a world in a dystopian future where bees are no more and there's been a horrible famine, but people have survived in an interesting way. There's a lot about nature in this book that's really um, very moving. Uh, Peony and many of the people that she grows up on the farm with have plant-based names. She thinks it's odd that, odd that Esmeralda, who she meets, has a really strange name that maybe, you know, does feel like a bit of an old-fashioned name even to us, but at the same time is a bit more like a name we might find familiar, whereas a lot of the, the people that Peony grows up with have names after nature or plants which I thought was a lovely little inclusion also uh, she really hates wearing shoes and just loves being outside and you can definitely see that that's part of where she gets her life force in a way you kind of feel like peony is a kind of metaphor for the fact that nature is going to triumph even if we kind of screw it up a bit is that sort of like one of the parallels that you were trying to create for kids 
or at the very least, was it something in encouraging kids outside and away from video games? Because certainly <laughs> video games don't get a great rap in this book, I have to say. No, no, Peony. Peony's not grown up with any sort of technology. I mean, she lives in a shack when the best technology I have is a pot, pot belly stove, which keeps them warm and cooks their food. That is the extent of her technology. Um, so she's... She doesn't see the point of sitting down and staring at a TV screen and playing a silly game. She just thinks they're all silly. So she thinks Esmeralda was quite smart that she can work the um, screen on the fridge to look things up. But apart from that, she's like, mm, what are you doing? <laughs> you do really start to feel as well, though, that the real wealth also lies in understanding how the land works and working with it. Um, I won't give away the ending of the book, but it sort of ends in a way that really makes you feel like things will be okay for Peony and those like her because they've remained connected to the land. I do also like that uh, you sort of reference a, I won't say uh, what the name of the company is, but you reference one in here. <laughs> and I did wonder, um, do they know that the, the name's been used? Because I actually think they might quite enjoy how they've sort oh, of turned out. No, I didn't I didn't check with them. <laughs> I hope that's all <laughs> I right. I want to talk about some of the other maybe more... Um, you know, directly kind of relatable, very difficult subject matter that's in this book. There are references to family violence in here, covered in a way that, you know, seen through Peony's eyes, she's really a fighter and she, you know, she really doesn't, um, she's not bowed down by it, but certainly her family has been affected by uh, that. And you also cover themes of death. And I really thought this was a wonderful inclusion in a book for middle readers. I think there's some misapprehension that books that are written for children don't cover difficult themes, but the most difficult themes are covered in here, but with a lightness of touch uh, and in a way that I sort of feel like could open up conversation with kids. Is that part of why you address these issues in the book or is that something that really is a strong component of writing for children? Um, yeah, not too many people kill off people in children's books. Um, no, I kind of think the circle of life is a kind of theme and um, there's there's one one death in um, in the book that still makes me cry, so I don't know why I did it. But um, yeah, when I talk to children, if I talk to the children in the country, they're perfectly they're perfectly okay with reading about the deaths, um, and and they find it you know they they're not don't, they don't find it too confronting. But children in the city really do find it confronting, and that was something that sort of um, surprised me because uh, being a country child, um, you know, I just I just kind of wrote it in. It was just like, kind of like a circle of life. You know, things go on, and um, some people are, are weaker than others, and. You know, it's life's shorter for those people, perhaps. But um, yeah, I just, I just included it. I don't know subconsciously. I didn't really think too much about it. But I was surprised by the re- reaction of some of the children in the city who said, "Why did you do that?" Mm. And I'm like, "Well, <laughs> I'm sorry." I but the children in the country are really okay with it. I've asked them. I've quizzed them. They're like, "Yeah, yeah, that's fine." <laughs> seems to be something that's becoming more of a theme even in you know children's cartoons and in literature because it is something kids need to learn to talk about and increasingly I think there's a lot of talk about how to do that and how to do it in a way that is helpful to kids so because big things and difficult things happen in their lives and they need to have a language to discuss that I really feel like this book does 
bring a lot of those things. There is another book that you've just put out. Uh, I haven't had a chance to read it. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the latest book? Okay, so the latest book came out in February and that's called The Dog Runner. Um, and I got a grant from Neilma Sydney Travel Fund to go and travel around and research that. Uh, in this book, I basically get a big horrible fungus and make it leap in evolution and it takes out all the grasses. So that's all the wheat, oats, rye, barley, um, sugarcane, but also all the grass fodder for the sheep and the cow. So there's no meat or dairy. Um, there's no chickens, there's no eggs. So it's a a lot more food goes missing in this one and it's set closer to the our time so it's just a few years in the future um and we're sort of evolving into um ethanol buses and electric vehicles but we haven't progressed much further from that but um so it's a little i thought it would be a little bit more scary but it's basically a travel journey where two children are left in the flat while dad goes to look for mum who's away working because they have to get out of the city because the city's um hit peak famine and everybody is like it's getting too dangerous to stay in the city so they have to get out and the way that um well dad doesn't come back so the kids are left alone and the older brother decides that um they need to get out so um the way they get out is on a dog cart because their family hobby is dog mushing which in australia of course is hooking up a scooter or a bicycle or a little cart behind one or two huskies and and going through the forest sort of dawn and dusk when it's nice and cool um so yeah so they use a dog cart and they use old bicycle paths and everything to get out of the city and they're heading up country to some family who have a mushroom farm so it's all about good fungus bad fungus um fungus in the soil um yeah, and there's a lot of um, research gone into it about grassland regeneration and I've added um, an Aboriginal grandfather character who has provided the kids with information about the old ways because I thought I couldn't have a story about grass in Australia and not include you know, all those thousands of years of grass cultivation and all the old grasses that are still here. It feels like a very timely uh, set of books for you to have put out given, you know, we're now looking at the koala being kind of functionally extinct in Australia, which is genuinely horrifying. Climate change is ramping up. Kids are going to be asking questions like this. So I guess imagining a future like this isn't so far-fetched for kids, but it might also galvanise some action. I'm really, uh, I really love your investment in children in this way. And it kind of makes me feel like, uh, you know, really empowering them um, by giving them, you know, the darkest sides of things, but in a way that makes them feel like, you know what, you can still be agents of change, even in the small ways that kids can. Was that really something that you were considering, especially given things like the the children's climate protests that I found incredibly yeah. moving and rallying? Yeah, yeah. Greta Thunberg has got everybody moving and um, it's good. It's I think it's good that Greta's asking adults to change because it's not really a child's problem. It will be a child's problem eventually. So rather than uh, me galvanising children to protest and move, what I was hoping was it was uh, um, uh, giving children a space to talk about it because very often when children are scared, they shut down. And so Greta Thunberg is saying scary things. And there will be a lot of children who are angry and upset and want to protest, but there will be a lot of children who go quiet 
and they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to acknowledge it's happening because they're powerless and they know they can't change anything. So there will be a lot of children who go quiet. So by reading stories where they can see one child coping with an element of climate change and one child being brave and one child getting through, they've got this room then to talk about it because the problem is, and I think Greta Thunberg is finding this, she can't get any adults to talk about it. If people talk about it, they understand the problems. They don't shut off. Adults are far worse than children at shutting off. Adults shut down all the time. It's too scary. We don't understand it. It'll never happen. Well, if you look at the facts, it probably will happen unless we change. We're kind of at the point now where we have to change. And, yeah, so it's good to see Greta Thunberg standing up and making people talk about it. Well, I really feel like a few of those adults should be reading How to Be and Meeting Peony and her like, uh, because really it definitely is an incredibly good book, one that adults should read, but also the message inherent in it is something that we should all really be heeding, doing something about and maybe getting a bit more reconnected with our earth. Bren McDibble, thank you so much for joining me today on Backstory. Thank you for having me. That was author Bren McDibble talking about her award-winning book, How to Be, and her latest book, The Dog Runner. Both are out now. You are listening to Backstory on 3 R. Very soon I will be chatting with Glenn Iris Storytelling Director, uh, Storytelling Festival Director Suzanne Olb about that great local festival. So stay with us. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Now, the story of four generations of First Nations women, the challenges of the Me Too movement, and digital cultural survival games. These are all part of the things that you may hear about at the upcoming Glen Ira Storytelling Festival, which runs from the 22nd of June until the 7th of July. Joining me now on the line to discuss the festival is uh, Glen Ira Storytelling Festival Director, Suzanne Olb. Suzanne, welcome to Backstory. Thanks, Mel. It's great to be with you. Now, I am a huge fan of local literary festivals. It is kind of one of the the really most wonderful things about living in a city like Melbourne that, you know, there is no end to the kind of amazing events that you get to go to where you find out more about people who you know, really work in the craft of storytelling. But I did find this particular festival one that, that really kind of reflected a more universal sense of, of, you know, what is possible when you're talking about stories. I would love you to talk a little bit about some of the, um, the keynotes that are happening at this particular festival. Well, we've, it is a very multi-layered festival, as you've said, and we've got a, a huge range of theatre, art, literature, cabaret, comedy and music um, but some of the keynotes that I'd really like to point to is Writers Victoria are celebrating their 30th birthday, which is a, fabu- is a fabulous opportunity for us to host Christoph Tulkus, literary legend, Bram Presser, former punk rocker, Enzo Gandolfo, and Jamie Marina Lau, who's... Um, who will be discussing and reading and 
sharing in a Q&A. Um, their writing has, is some of the writing that lifts us up, makes us think, changes our world and brings us home. And I think it will be a really exciting discussion with Kate Cuthbert from Writers Victoria. They're all really great um, writers as well that are quite well known to, to triple R audiences. And it sort of shows you some of the, the kind of real heavy hitters, I guess, that we really have just living locally here. Locally in Victoria. Absolutely. Um, I am interested in finding out um, about some of the other um, events that you have mentioned. And, and those who, who want to look it up, um, you can find out a little bit more um, online as well about, uh, you know, what you can see and who's um, going to be around. There is a, an event that includes uh, Ron um, Alicia. Um, which, Ron Elisha. Elisha, yes. rather. Um, Unsolicited Mail is a play about, based, inspired by the Me Too movement, and you'll see dynamics that you could very well be on the casting couch, but he's really looking at it in a local context um, of a, a local boss and his executive assistant and how their relationship plays out and how they talk to their mentors, one having a mentor of her sister and the other having a a coach, life coach. And it's a really interesting dissection of the dynamics that can play out in a relationship between a boss and an executive assistant. I really love this idea of, you know, where we can go, particularly with, you know, I guess political movements and how literature and, you know, other storytelling forms really address them. Uh, I feel like this is certainly something that you've tried to kind of foreground um, in all of the the material around this festival is kind of really discussing um, themes uh, behind the storytelling. Do you really think that, that, you know, that is kind of an instrumental part of storytelling to kind of really address societal themes or do you think that it is just to kind of transport us away from it in a little sense? Oh I think it does both. I think it addresses societal themes like um, Australian societal writer Elliot Perlman who's presenting um, storytelling workshop for kids and their parents based on the adventures of Kat Finkel but he gently addresses themes of racism, xenophobia and bullying through pet characters. Um, I think that's part of it. But then it is a part of it to take us away. He, he chose Amsterdam as his city for, for um, a children's storybook because he... He thought it was just the perfect setting with the cobblestones and the the canals and the and the um, beautiful houses and the cats in the window. Um, I think that we we need to get away sometimes, and it's beautiful to immerse yourself in literature and and have another story. But you come back home and 
our festival tries to take you to all sorts of places. We've got Schmoozin in Carlton, which takes you off to the, the beginning of, of jewellery in, in Australia, um, run by the Kadima, the, the centre of Yiddish literature, uh, performed by El- Evelyn Crape, amongst others. Uh, I think writing really transports you to different places and deals with social issues. Mm. I think uh, particularly the Glen Ira Festival is a really interesting one because uh, I think from its very beginning it's had wound into it, you know, um, discussion about migration and, um, you know, cultural um, discussions. But also um, another feature of this festival as well is uh, the the story of um, Indigenous women um, and, you know, obviously the land on on which we live here, um, First Nations people and their stories really increasingly um, are starting to get foregrounded very late in the piece but but yes that is certainly a feature of this particular festival can you tell us a little bit about that event yes um we we're featuring matriarch which i first saw at the 2018 fringe festival um it's a wonderful piece of theater about four generations of first nation women uh, who have survived, not only survived, but it celebrates their resilience and strength in the face of things like the Red Rock Man- Massacre of the 1880s, in the face of stolen generations. Um, it's a really confronting piece, but it's a very affirming piece. And it's it powerfully, powerfully brings Sandy Greenwood's matriarchs to vividly to life. And she's the performer. Now, if you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm talking to Suzanne Olb, uh, the director of the Glen Ira Storytelling Festival. And it is storytelling in all its many forms, not just books, but also theatre and cabaret uh, and other types of uh, storytelling outlets. One um, event that I'd love to to leave our discussion on is uh, Towards Cinematic Vision, uh, which actually... uh, yeah, it's a discussion with uh, Christian White, the author of Nowhere, The Nowhere Child, um, and uh, it seems to be sort of discussions around the difference between writing for the page and writing for screen. I'm always fascinated by these these kinds of things, how adaptation works, you know, how the different mediums affect what you say. It's a really interesting topic. Absolutely. We, we chose it because it's really looking at how to pick the right medium for your story. Screenwriting versus writing for books. Understanding the differences and learning how one medium can help with another and help evolve the medium. Um, Nicholas Brash, Chair of Writers Victoria, is leading the conversation with Christian White, who is, as you said, the author of best-selling debut, The Nowhere Child, um, which won, actually won the Victorian Premier's Award for Unpublished Manuscript in 2017. And 
He's worked on projects including the feature film The Relic and he's a fantastic talker and I think this discussion will be very, very interesting. Well, I'm afraid that's all we're going to have time for. This is a, a really excellent festival. Uh, it runs, as I understand, from the 22nd of June until the 7th of July. So it's actually quite uh, a fairly long period of time. How do people find out a bit more about the event? They go to www.glenara.vic.au slash STF. Or just go to the Glenara City Council website. That might be uh, that might be an easy way to go. Yeah. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much for joining me on Backstory today. I am very much looking forward to attending the festival myself. Terrific. Uh, later in June. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Mel. That was uh, Suzanne Olb, the uh, director of the Glen Ira Storytelling Festival. Three triple R. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.